0: Well, my name's Lloyd. I'm one of the, the pastors here. It's good to have you with us. Whether you've been here many, many times um, or it's your first time, it's good to have you uh, with us. Uh, for those who are new, um, I'll let you guess where I'm from. Uh, but um, just to warn you that there won't be any subtitles here on the screen. Maybe for the stream. I think on YouTube, they have some sort of natural subtitles thing. But um, for us here, you'll just have to kind of get used to the accent today. But we're looking at... Um, we're looking at Jesus. Who is Jesus? We're going through Luke's Gospel. We've been going through it for some time. And um, we may still be going through it for some time. We're only at chapter 7, right? Um, but Luke's Gospel is one of the four portraits of Jesus. And um, these portraits have a different angle. They look from different perspectives. But they are talking about the same person. They're painting the same person. But the question that we're looking at is, is this. Who is Jesus? And that is the main question. And that's the question that we find um, is the context of the passage that we're in today. Uh, Before this passage, uh, they're talking about, um, is Jesus a prophet? What kind of prophet is he? Is he really a prophet? And so I think that is the main uh, point of the passage, is uh, the, the Pharisee's reaction, his thought, who is this? Can he be a prophet if he doesn't know what this woman is like? And I also preached a a great sermon on this last summer. So if you want to kind of um, take it from that perspective, please do. You'll be able to find it on YouTube or um, on our kind of um, stream podcast thing, um, whatever that is. You could do that, that's last summer. But today I want to kind of take a different angle on this uh, today and focus on this uh, woman who's called a sinful woman. And kind of ask this question, um, not just who is Jesus, but more so what is he like? You can know my name, you can know um, where I'm from, how I sound, but it's going to take more to know what I'm like. Today, we're going to look at what Jesus is like. So why don't I pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, that we uh, don't need to guess what you're like, that there is something as we look to Jesus that shows us what God is like, that he represents the Father to us. When we see him, we see what God is like. We don't need to guess. We don't need to stumble about in the dark, kind of wondering. But we can behold and be held by that. So I ask, Lord, that your spirit would open that to us. Uh, We confess that we can only kind of grasp um, in limited ways some of what's going on here. So we ask that you would do that in our hearts. Open our eyes. Soften our hearts. Unwax our ears. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at two big questions. What is Jesus' response to this woman? And what does it mean for us? How does Jesus respond to this woman? And what does it mean for us? So let's look at Jesus' response to the woman and her history. First, the setting. Jesus, we see, is always going to eat somewhere. He'd be very at home in Vancouver, wouldn't he? (laughs) So much so that in the previous verses before ours today, people say of him, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. These were insults and accusations. Tax collectors and sinners were the lowest of the low. And so here we see one of the Pharisees invites him. Pharisees were the religious elite of the day, kind of like the religious police of the day, or moral enforcers, to help Israel clean up her act so that God would finally come and free them from their Roman oppressors. If they could just kind of perform well enough or or obey enough, then God surely would come and save them from this oppression that they are in. And so Jesus usually um, has dinner and time with, with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus usually has McFlurries with the riffraff. But he's happy to have earnest ice cream too in a posh waffle cone and talk religion and politics if you were to invite him. That's what he was doing here. Dinner in those days was a very communal affair. People could actually come in and out of the house or hang out and listen by the window. This was an introvert or a miserly host's worst nightmare. So here Jesus is with his posh ice cream when someone comes in with a McFlurry A woman of that town who was a sinner, we are told, enters. And then we realise, actually, that the reference to tax collectors and sinners was really tax collectors and prostitutes. Tax collectors were bad. But prostitutes were so bad and unspeakable that they had to come up with an enigmatic euphemism or code word to describe them. But everyone knew, even with a code word, who these Sinners were they were both scorned and hated, blamed and shamed, not the men who, who used them or, or, or bought them, or they just got with, they got away with it, kind of like today when we talk about those who are victims of sexual crime in a passive way. this many number of people were raped rather than those who actively commit these sexual crimes, even in our language, even in the way that we construct our phrases, we show where we consciously and subconsciously assume the weight of blame lies. As she walks into the dinner, we don't know her history, but everyone else does. We don't know the ins and outs of her reputation, but everyone else seems to. They manage to do that thing where you show your disapproval while skillfully avoiding eye contact. You know how some people are really kind of really good at that? She stands behind Jesus at his feet. And you need to know that this wasn't under the table. Okay, so it's not as if Jesus was sitting here and his feet were under there and she kind of comes under and kind of is under the table. Um, At these kind of meals, there was a low table. So imagine this being quite low here. And what people would do was was this. um, This is not good for this camera, maybe for this one. Uh, You'd you'd lie down like this, right, on on your left and you would eat like this. And so the feet were out. You get it? So you've probably got some aches on that left shoulder there. But that's how you ate. That's what it means to recline at the table. That's what they're talking about there. So you can see that the feet are facing outwards. And she's next to his feet, listening in. She's maybe heard them before, but she begins to weep. We're told tears rain down, literally. So it's not just a couple of tears. There's likely lots of tears. Probably a lot of snot as well. Isn't that the worst thing about crying? Is the snot that comes. Like if it was just tears, it'd be fine, but it's the snot that kind of comes, especially when you're wearing a mask or something else. Horrendous. But it must have been at least a few minutes because she wets Jesus' feet with her tears. She, she dries them with the hair of her head. She kisses his feet and puts oint, um, anoints them with ointment or oil from her alabaster flask, likely around her neck. Another sign of her history, her past, her profession. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't run away. He sees her. He is present to her. He sees her history, but he he doesn't run away. I would literally do the opposite. I can't deal with feet, big emotions, people staring at me, people interrupting my dinner, especially when it's nice dinner and earnest ice cream, right? It's my nightmare. But Her emotions don't scare him like they do me. I'm a bit better now, to be fair a few years ago, any sight of tears in my mind would go down so many rabbit holes. How is this my fault? What should I do? What should I say? What should I do with my hands here? That I'd be like a rabbit in headlights. I wouldn't know what to deal with, what to do. But Jesus is able to take her biggest emotions. In the most dramatic of settings, he sees her, he is present to her, and he doesn't run away. What does Jesus do? He sees her story. He's present to her. He doesn't run away. That's her story. He also sees her shame. Notice how she is unnamed. Notice how we don't actually ever hear her speak. It's beautifully written and kind of narrated, isn't it? She has no place in decent society. Why would you give her her voice? Even here we kind of get a glimpse of that. She wasn't invited. It says in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was touching him. For she's a sinner. And the gracious irony for us is this. Jesus really did know exactly who she was, what she did, what kind of sinner she was. He knew more than the Pharisee did, but he saw her. He saw past her story her present shame. You see, shame is this uh, painful experience that you feel that you've done something or failed to do something that has made you unwanted or unworthy of belonging or acceptance. kind of echoes through your life, perhaps like it has done mine. I'm not enough. It's always my fault. I'll never belong. Shame is the most consistent key driver of unwanted sexual behaviour, the root of all the other addictions that there are. It convinces us that we are unwanted, and then we pursue, in a double blow, behaviour that confirms that we're not wanted, that we don't belong. It's like a raincoat we put over our soul that we think will protect us when actually it repels the living water of love that we're actually needing and that we're seeking and that we need the most. What does Jesus do in her shame? He defends her. He affirms her. He dignifies her. He actually takes on her shame. Did you notice that? He allows his reputation to suffer for every moment he doesn't run away. For those minutes that she's there with him, standing next to him, never mind touching his feet, his reputation suffers. For every word that he says that honours her, his reputation is dishonoured. Look at what he says. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, like was the custom of the day, all these things, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. This silent, shameful woman's actions are allowed to speak louder than a thousand words. A thousand, thousand words. Through generations, through, through centuries. But her actions are allowed to sing through Jesus' words and action, the way that he dignifies her. Jesus had been invited, but she hadn't. By no uncertain terms, Jesus says, she's with me. He's glad to do this. He's that kind of friend. Sometimes I think in, in weird daydreams that, that I would take a bullet for, for my family, for sure, for many of you here. I would l- somehow love that kind of bravery, that nobility, that kind of maybe being in the paper or something, right? But I'm not sure I could be shamed by you 50 times or 500 times or 5,000 times. I could face taking a bullet, but I'm not sure I could face dying through a million paper cuts for you. But Jesus does seem to be able to do that. He's that kind of friend. He's not the schoolmate who's happy to be with you to get your homework when you're somewhere private where it's just you two. But who ignores you out in the schoolyard or or when you're with some of the cool crowd at school. He's like... (laughs) No, through thick and thin, he says to those who come to him in faith, You're with me, I got you, you belong. He sees her in her shame, he invites her to belong, he doesn't run away. In fact, he kind of moves towards her. And so he sees her in her story, in her shame. He doesn't run away, he sticks around. So her story, her shame, her sin. Sin is described in various ways in the Bible. It can mean lots of different things. You're probably thinking, I didn't come to church on Sunday to be told about my sin. I've got better things to do with my time, but hear me out here. It can mean missing the target. It can mean transgressing a boundary or rebellion. There are various ways of of how sin is described. But the one one, um, here is the idea of sin being a debt. The basis is this. We have been entrusted with life. Sin is the desire to live independent of God, to deny that everything that we have is alone. And everything that we have really belongs to to God. So sin is this posture of our hearts where we seek to live independently of him. Thanks, but no thanks, God. To call our own shots so that we can be the ones in control so we don't actually have to depend on another voice or to depend on him in our life. I want you to notice here the pos- range of possibilities for this kind of sin, right? Of sin. It's possible to sin in this way by very openly disobeying the rules. Selling your body, selling um, your wares, or selling, um, yeah, your body to, to, to those who, who will use and abuse that. It's kind of an obvious way to do that. But it's actually possible to sin in this way by obeying the rules. Right? So, we can disobey God um, and, and be sinning and saying, No, I want to do it in my own way. But we can actually sin by keeping the rules like the Pharisees would have done. Pharisees were sticklers for the rules. They added rules to rules so that they could rule over rules with more ruling rules. They had so many rules, literally, they expanded the number. In the Torah, they had lots of teaching and and side things that they needed to do in order to kind of ever stop themselves from, uh, uh, yeah, lead themselves to kind of, uh, to, to, God forbid, uh, break one of the rules. But they were still sinning by doing that. They were seeking independence from God by keeping the rules. They were still sinning. They were still in debt. But the danger with this because you're still wanting to keep God at arm's length, right? When you're keeping the rules in order to have him not have to say to you um, anything meaningful or or something that you don't want to do, it's still seeking an independence from God. It's still being in debt. But the danger with this kind of sinning that the Pharisees were doing is that they didn't realise it. Whether 50 or 500 denarii in debt, both were in debt, both were in the same boat, and both didn't have a cent to pay it back. Both could be thrown into prison because they didn't have a cent to pay that back. But the woman realized this and the Pharisees didn't. What does Jesus do? He doesn't deny that she's a sinner. He says this, I tell you her sins, which are many. And she's like, Jesus, I'm still here. (laughs) He says, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He forgives her. Her many sins are forgiven. And her lavish love shows that she has already been forgiven. She's responding out of gratitude here. 50, 500 denarii, 5,000, you get the impression, 500,000 denarii. Two, debt needs to be repaid. Someone has to pay, either the debtor or the creditor. And creditors tend to have the power to get the debtors to pay one way or another. But someone has to absorb that debt. Who pays? says this in Colossians 2. And you who were dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, our sin, by cancelling the record or debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. Jesus pays the price. However much Jesus absorbs that debt for you, for me, he nails it to a cross. He dies the death that we should have died but couldn't die. He sees her. He sees her sin and her debt. He pays it. He forgives her many sins. He doesn't run away. He moves towards her. And so with our story, our history, our shame, our our sin, with this woman's story, her, her shame, her sin, there's no barrier to Jesus' love for her reminds me of this quote um, from Cory Ten Boom's sister, Betsy. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Whatever pit you're in this morning, however you're feeling, however hopeless that might be for you, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. So what does this woman do when she experiences this? She Gives her all. She holds nothing back. She physically comes out of hiding. It'd be so easy for her to hide, right? Not to come forward. She's hidden for too long, though. She emotionally lets her tears flow. She cries. She weeps. She lets her tears rain down. She lets down her hair. Something vulnerable, something unbecoming, something that was meant to be reserved for a, for a husband. Something vulnerable but she's finally found safety at last to be seen. She pours out her flask of perfume, of ointment, because she's found a better use for it now. It was not only her financial security, but also the only power that she had in this world. She gives it up. Take my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. She gives her all. She's seen and known by Jesus and he doesn't run away. He's present to her despite her story. He enables her to belong despite her shame. He forgives her and pays her, dis- her debt despite her sin. He sees her. He doesn't run away. In fact, he moves towards her all the more. What wonder, what grace, what love. That's Jesus' response to this woman. So what does this mean for us? Lots of things, but let me focus on this. We can bring our whole selves to Him. We can bring our whole selves to Him by coming out of hiding and by really seeing who's calling us out of hiding. Or to come out of hiding. There are a million reasons for this woman not to go and meet Jesus at this Pharisee's house. Same with us our story, our sin, our shame what people think, what Jesus might think. What if we cry embarrassingly with snotty tears? But he invites us out. He invites us to come out of hiding. What stops us? One, we don't realise we're hiding sometimes. My kids are into hide and seek right now in our East Vancouver basement suite. There is limited space to hide, it's fair to say. Which is really uh, boring for me, but absolutely fine for them. Because in Hide and Seek, we want to be found, don't we? I can't use it as a chance to count to 20 in increments of 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, and then go up the way, all the way to 20 and then start checking my emails while they're hiding. I can't do that, I've tried. No, they want to be found. We want to be found. And yet perhaps we've been hiding so long that we've forgotten that we're supposed to be found. The point of hide and seek is not to forever be hiding or to hide for the rest of time, but eventually to be found. To have the joy and delight of being found. So many of us have gotten so good at hiding or got so used to hiding that we've forgotten that we're actually hiding. To kind of adapt a quote. You're so used to hiding yourself to others that you've actually become hidden to yourself. You're so used to hiding yourself to others that you've actually become hidden to yourself. Maybe we don't realise what we're hiding anymore. Here's a quote from David Benner in a book, The Gift of Being Yourself. Every moment of every day of our life God wanders in our inner garden seeking our companionship the reason God can't find us is that we're hiding in the bushes of our false self God's call to us is gentle and persistent where are you? why are you hiding? not in a condemning way but where are you? are you hiding? what would it look like for you to answer that? to realise that where are you? Where are you hiding? See, we struggle because we don't realise that we're hiding. Or we don't realise who's inviting us out. Who's coming to find us. We struggle with vulnerability. We say, yes, I want to be seen and known with one hand. But then on the other hand, we say, I can't. It's just too difficult. I've been hurt too much. We struggle to see how we can show our full emotions, really let down our hair. But we can only do so when we focus on the one who actually invites us out. We don't realise how good and forgiving Jesus is, that he really was the friend of sinners. People use that as an insult, as a condemnation of him, but he makes it into a badge of honour. Here's a quote from a book called Gentle and Lowly talking about how these words describe Jesus. What does it mean that Christ is a friend to sinners? At the very least, it means that he enjoys spending time with them. It also means that they feel welcome and comfortable around him. The very two groups of people whom Jesus is accused of befriending, tax collectors and sinners or prostitutes, as we know, are those who can't stay away from him. They are at ease around him. They sense something different about him. Others hold them at arm's length, but Jesus offers enticing intrigue of fresh hope, what he is really doing at bottom is pulling them into his heart. What if those things that we are ashamed of in our lives are the very things that draw his heart to us all the more? Romans 5.20 says this, where sin increased grace abounded all the more. And Paul goes on to kind of say, what what that doesn't mean in Romans, but what might it mean? What if the guilt and shame can be outstripped by Jesus' abounding grace if we let it? What if even, you know, even though we feel as if our thoughts, our words and deeds are lessening God's grace towards us, those sins and failures cause it to come towards us all the more? What if it's not grudging grace and love that he shows us, but is tender, warm, is pursuing that comes after us in beautiful ways? What if these things um, that we hate about ourselves, that we think God hates, are the things that draw his heart towards us all the more in love and desire to see those things not destroy you or to stop you being less human or to stop you being less you? What if those things that you hate, that you've been in despair over, that you've sought to kind of get rid of and excise from your life are the very things that draw his heart to you and the purity of his heart? in his love for you, in the hatred of that sin itself, but in his love for you. We are invited to be vulnerable before this kind of God, to cry our tears, to let down our hair. This is my Sunday hair, right? It's all tied back. I'm trying to be like professional, right? What would it look like for us to let that go before him? We have to be vulnerable before him. But perhaps there's a step before that. We need to be vulnerable before ourselves. Notice the contrast between the Pharisee and this woman. I'm not spending a lot of time in the Pharisee here, but it's it's a good contrast here. The Pharisee is judgmental, right? All that we see him doing is kind of, um, is Jesus going to be this? Is he a prophet? Look at this woman, she's a sinner. Don't talk to her. How does he know? Right? The problem with judgmentalism and judgment is that it requires punishment, either of someone else or of, our, of ourself. I should say that in a more clear way. Judgment does, that requires punishment either of others or ourselves. you think this chap was going to be a fun guy to be with? As he judges others, you, 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 he's going to be judging himself holding himself up to these kind of standards and not making them and berating himself, judging himself, condemning himself, putting himself into the ground. Contrast this with compassion or or self-compassion. We could describe it as this turning towards our own pain with gentleness. Realising that we are indebted, we need saving, we need rescuing, but in our story, in our sin, in our shame, if Jesus doesn't run away, then maybe we don't need to run away as well. Both are debtors, but she just knows that she is. She's able to be honest enough to admit and to embrace it. The first step of coming out of hiding is a step towards honesty with ourselves. Coming out of hiding requires that we embrace the vulnerabilities that first sent us scurrying for cover. As long as we try to pretend these things are not as they are, we choose falsity the first step out of the bushes is always then a step towards honesty with ourselves. And so practically, how, how does that look? Let me give you three suggestions here. The first two from David Benner, and then the last one um, I'm just adding to it. Firstly, ask God to help you see what makes you feel most vulnerable and most like running for cover. It may be conflict, or perhaps it's failure, pain, emotional upset, or loss of face. Allow yourself to feel the, the, the distress that would be present If you did not avoid these things, then listening to God's invitation to come out of the bushes in which you're hiding, step out and allow God to embrace you just as you are. Number two, prayerfully reflect on the image of yourself to which you're most attached. Consider how you like to think about yourself, what you're most proud of about yourself. Ask God to help you see the ways you use these things to defend against feelings of vulnerability and then ask God to prepare you to trust enough to let go of these fig leaves of your personal style. Thirdly, look towards your story with compassion rather than judgment. An example is, um, I'm reading a book called Unwanted. Uh, the, the subtitle is this, Sexual Brokenness, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing by J.H. Stringer. And here's the blurb. Unwanted, it describes how we feel about some of the things we do We don't wake up in the morning looking forward to giving our evening over to pornography. We don't leave the house each day eagerly anticipating our next one-night stand. These are unwanted behaviours on our part, no matter how compulsively we pursue them. But unwanted also can describe how we feel about ourselves, both both as a consequence of our broken behaviour and as a driver of it. If we have the courage to study our sexual brokenness, to look beyond the shame of it to its roots, we will find that there's a deeper brokenness that's there waiting to be healed and a God there waiting to be our healer. What if instead of running away from those things, we actually go deeper into them so we can kind of see what's at the root of them and begin to kind of find healing there. Let me do something very un-Vancouver-like. Let me let you in on a deeper level um, into my life. Uh, something below the surface here. Being open and vulnerable is not very Chinese or Scottish either, so um, you might conclude that it's God's work in my life or I simply need more therapy. Um, both may be true. I'll let you decide. A few months ago, I was, found myself hiding from God. I wasn't quite sure why, but I could feel it. I've been doing this course on narrative-focused trauma care, it's called. So about stories and trauma and how Jesus connects these and connects with these with hope. I was drawn to the course because I'm kind of a pastor. I should do those sort of things. Through this desire to help other people through not only big T trauma, like you know, uh, war and kind of coming back and having flashbacks, but also small T trauma, kind of the residue of, of not attaching well to our parents or our family. And understanding how the past affects the present and the future. But while we are learning to journey with others through this, um, they tell us on the course that you can't journey with others unless you've been through this journey yourself. So basically, they trick you. They trick you into um, wanting to help others in order to force you to deal with all the carnage and mess in your own life. It's ridiculous. So I resent this course every time I've sat down to write several pages about various traumatic experiences in my own life, thinking, why exactly am I doing this? One of the assignments has been to write about an experience that showed some of how my family system worked in action. I wrote about an incident with a member of my family where we were in each other's faces. In the UK, we call that squaring up to each other. In my hometown, it's called a square go." So if you ever go to Glasgow and someone wants a square go, it's not a geometry lesson or any kind of dance. And um, They're looking for a, a fight. And we were squared up to each other and we were so angry and so close to coming to blows that the other person said, go on then, hit me. I wanted to with so much of my being, but I didn't. Instead, I, I went into my bedroom, slammed the door and punched this hole in the wall. That's not the main issue. The main issue was this. (laughs) This incident was never spoken of again. The anger was never processed or discussed. In fact, after a few days, magically this bookshelf appeared over this hole above my desk. Covered this hole. And this hole remains to this day. That's why my mum can take a photo of it now. Right? I realised that anger was not processed in my family. Anger was not welcome. There was no space for it. Anger was to be absorbed by those uh, feeling it until it was kind of forgotten, but not really, but it was kind of under the carpet, and it was so deep now, we might as well not talk about it anymore. What I'm realising is this, that emotions are informative. Anger's not bad in itself, it's telling me something. It's information, and it's there whether I like it or not, and it resides in my body. The body keeps the score. And so it's been like holding a, a beach ball underwater for all of my life. It's tiring. It's been like jumping on what I think is a bomb, thinking I'm saving other people from it exploding, when really all it's doing is corroding me from the inside, outside then. It's destructive. And when I realised, what I realised when I sought to look with compassion rather than judgement on this, these areas of my life was this, because I've not learned how to process anger healthily in my life, within my family or with myself, I actually don't know how to do this with God I think I'm supposed to simply absorb it to grin and bear it but it's made me hide and that's why I was hiding I didn't know why for so long but I was angry there's lots to be angry about in this world right now I didn't know how to bring that to God because I'd never done that even with myself never mind with him what might that look like? I knew intellectually I could, right? Some of the Psalms obviously do that. There's a righteous anger that God describes that that I knew in my head, but viscerally, instinctively, bodily, I felt as if I couldn't bring it to God. When I was angry, I just felt like I needed to hide, hide again. I couldn't bring it to him. But how Jesus treats this woman's tears, or how he treats my anger, my tears, my fears, he sees that he doesn't run away. He's present. He's inviting. He actually moves towards me. He actually wants me to see deeper in what deeper ways it's destroying me and affecting me. He helps me to be curious and compassionate rather than just judgmental, which I'm very good at being. I find such hope as his tender patience and compassion has slowly edged out what I thought would be his judgment and scorn and it's disarmed my own judgment and shame. It's doing something. I wonder for you, what emotion, what part of your story, what sin are you ashamed of? That that you've been made to feel ashamed of all your life. What have you been told from a young age? Oh, that's too much. Tone it down. Dial it down. What if today you realise Jesus can handle it? What if Jesus actually wants to bring healing to those parts of you that you've done everything in your power to hide all your life? What if it's the very avenue that you're going to find healing, the very plot line from which a new chapter is going to be written in your life? I wonder, would you wonder with me? We don't believe that Jesus' love and forgiveness is deeper than our history, or our sin, or our shame. We struggle to believe it. It just seems kind of too good to be true. And so we bring part of ourselves. We bring the bits that are palatable, that are nice, that can be put under a light and not look too ugly. But we can bring our whole selves, friends. We really can come out of hiding when we see who it is that's calling us out, who's coming to find us, there really is no pit so deep, no story of shame or sin, so beyond the pale that Christ's love does not go deeper still. Will you pray with me?